Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Joseph Fidel. Today we're going to be talking about Jesus Interrupted. That's a book that was suggested to me by Dougal Owen. Dougal, if you're listening, I want you to know you were my favorite professor in college. Today will be an interesting discussion of this book and some problems I see with it. So let's get in and talk about it. So, Nate, uh, who is Bart Ehrman? Well, Bart Ehrman is famous for outrageous claims in a style that actually makes them sound relevant. He's the one that says there are 400,000 errors in the New Testament. The only problem, which he actually notices, is there aren't even that many words in the New Testament, right? <laughs> it's impossible for there to be more errors than there are words in the manuscript. He's claiming that there are that many errors in the actual original manuscripts in the variety of different manuscripts that we have. Now, here's the issue. Most of those variations are insignificant and not even translatable. Different spellings and words over different time periods and so forth. And so those are not even issues whatsoever. He broadly states that number and then gives well-known examples of issues that really are issues to imply that there are 400,000 problems like that. One of his favorites is to say things like there are 400,000 errors in the New Testament. Here's an example. In John 8, we hear about the woman caught in adultery, and we don't know whether or not that passage is authentic or not. Every Bible in print today, pretty much, has John 7.53 through 8.11 marked off with a statement that that is not found in the early manuscripts. So this isn't news to anybody that's ever read their Bible, but he knows that many people have heard that passage, and when he says there are 400,000 errors, and here's one example, he knows that the conclusion you're going to come to is the whole thing is full of errors, right? And so he kind of plays a lot of tricks, it seems, on people. No one believes that every manuscript in existence, I'm talking about the early manuscripts, is inerrant. There are so many different fragments in history, thousands of different fragments, and some of those do have errors. What's wonderful, though, is when we compare the ones with errors to the thousands that don't have them, we quickly see what was originally written and what was not. And from there, we can know that we have for certain what God intended for us to have as his word. In fact, Bart Ehrman's own wife, Sarah Beckwith, is a believer, and she's also a Ph.D. professor at Duke University. She says, I would love for him, Bart, to be there at church with me, and sometimes I wish it was something that we share, but I respect the integrity of decisions he's made, even if I reject the logic by which he reached them. Basically, Bart's own highly educated wife is saying, I love and respect him, but he's illogical and dead wrong. Not a very good thing to hear from your wife. So on an interesting note, he agrees with much of the historicity of the New Testament claims. He believes Jesus lived and died, that he was crucified. So for all the doubters out there that try to say that Jesus never existed, that's not the point at all of what he's trying to say. He believes all that. He's just trying to say we can't trust every word of the original documents. So now getting to the problems with his criticisms of the Bible. Proverbs 18.17 says, The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. When you first read Ehrman, he will sound very convincing. But once you start looking at the evidence, those convincing arguments are not so convincing anymore. Ben Witherington is an expert in the field of textual criticism. He's written a great analysis of this book on his blog, and he puts it this way. Bart Ehrman has never done the necessary laboring in the scholarly vineyard to be in a position to write a book like Jesus Interrupted from a position of long study and knowledge of New Testament studies. 
His area of expertise is in textual criticism, and he has certainly written works which have been variously reviewed, not to mention severely critiqued by other textual critics, such as Gordon D. Fee and his own mentor, Bruce Metzger. He is thus in the Guild of the Society of Biblical Literature a specialist in text criticism, but even in that realm, he does not represent what might be called a majority view on such matters. Witherington continues, noting that this book, Jesus Interrupted, is contrary to the last 30 years of findings in this field, saying, I do not say this lightly, for this book manifests problems in all areas. If one critiques it on the basis of New Testament scholarship of the last 30 years or so, there are methodological problems, historical problems, exegetical problems, theological problems, and epistemological problems with this book, to mention just a few areas. Jesus Interrupted is basically like a loosely strung-together conspiracy theory that sounds a bit convincing, but with a little tug on any one of its strings, it all unravels. Bart begins by telling us the rigorous historical critical model of scholarly analysis ends all debate about the credibility of the scriptures. And he then tells us that most of his scholar friends are Christians, and that he turned from faith not because of these issues, but rather because of the problem of pain. He wrote a book called God's Problem. You can see more about that there. Basically, he's telling us his bias. He says, the evidence that I claim leads you away from believing the Bible didn't lead me away from the Bible, but rather this bias I have led me away from the Bible. And none of this evidence is fundamentally what led him from faith. He also admits most of his scholar friends that look at the same evidence are Christians. Interestingly, they are not led away from their faith in Christ because of this evidence. So we find his bias is the driving force behind the rest of the book. Throughout the book, he says, all pastors know about these problems. Why aren't they trying to tell their lay people about it, implying that there's some kind of secret going on or they don't want the truth revealed? Well, the real answer, Bart, is most of those pastors, like most of your scholar friends, have looked at the evidence and realized there's not a problem. His entire critique of the New Testament is a generalization that misses the mark. It just isn't true that his opinions are the opinions of mainstream authorities in this field. Like Witherington said, it hasn't been that way for over 30 years. Nothing he shares is new at all. Scholars have given great answers to his many questions for many years. He makes a big deal about chronology in the Gospels, not realizing that the Gospels and most literature of the time weren't focused necessarily on the chronology, but rather on the content. One example is how he talks about Matthew's and Mark's accounts of Peter's three denials, before the cock crows, Mark, and before it crows twice, Matthew. He says, well, which one was it? Was it before the cock crowed once or before it crowed twice? Well, here's the news flash. If he denied Christ three times before the cock crowed, it was before the cock crowed twice. There's no contradiction there, but the way he words it seems to make it seem that there is a contradiction. And he misses the point that the chronology wasn't the main issue in the first century AD in any kind of writings. But the real issue was the stories and what they signified. He makes a big deal about not reading the Gospels together, saying over and over that that would create a fifth Gospel. He misses the point, though, that these Gospels were meant, even from that time period, to be taken together as a full account. And all Christians believe that the entire Word of God is inspired. It'd be crazy for me to say, Matthew and Mark shared two different details, so they both must be wrong. You wouldn't say that about any historical event. Just last week, Osama bin Laden was killed by American forces. I've read numerous news stories on that. None of them were word-for-word word identical to each other. Doesn't mean that fact did not occur. It just means that different people wrote from different perspectives, right? The apparent differences only come from pulling them out of their full context. 
Witherington gives a great analogy about what's going on here by discussing a few of his favorite Monet paintings of the Rhone Cathedral from different angles. And this is what Witherington says. Let us suppose for a minute that the Gospels are like these paintings. Now it would be totally pedantic to have an argument that went as follows. In this painting, Monet depicts the color of the front facade of the cathedral as being gray. But in this picture, he paints it as being a yellowish shade. And in this picture, a pinkish shade. Which is it? Surely one must be right and the other depiction is wrong. Of course, the proper response to this silly discourse is that they are all right because they attempt to depict the appearance of the building at different times of day from slightly different angles. And no art critic in their right mind would think of suggesting that one painting was an error compared to the others. That's a great analogy about what Bart is trying to do in the first chapter of his book. So Bart is wrong in saying, historically speaking then, the accounts are not reconcilable. They only seem that way when read from a 21st century perspective, which Bart warns us not to do when describing the historical critical method. It's interesting that he falls into the same trap that he warns his readers not to do. So now what about these supposed contradictions that Bart mentions? He tells us about numerous supposed contradictions that he finds in the New Testament, and then he tells us that we must first assume each of these accounts stands alone and that all the differences must be taken as contradictions. Again, you would never do that with any kind of a historical account. If you have just a basic rudimentary understanding of Scripture, these supposed contradictions quickly fall apart, and the few that don't can be resolved with a few minutes of research. One example that came to mind was in Exodus 9.3, plague number 5, God kills all the Egyptian cattle in the field with a disease. In Exodus 9.19, plague number 7, God kills all the livestock in the field and anything else left out in the field with hail. Bart says, what livestock? They were just killed in plague number 5. Well, the problem is, is right there in plague number 5, it says what? The livestock that were in the field. And in plague number 7, God clearly states that any cattle that are left out in the field and not given shelter will die, thus implying what he meant by in the field in the first case as well. Now, even if all the Egyptian cattle had been killed in plague number 5, it's not a stretch to imagine that Pharaoh would have quickly stolen or apprehended a lot of cattle from the Israelites whose cattle were not killed in plague number 5, and then God easily could have been killing those in plague number 7. There is not a contradiction there. It's only a contradiction if I try to read it outside of its context and without even reading the very words in the sentence. You have to read that first plague without reading in the field to make it sound like a contradiction. Witherington concludes the acid of skepticism has a corrosive effect. It leads one to find contradictions and faults at every turn, even when they aren't there. So what about the variant views he claims exist? Well, after weeding out the passages he disagrees with and adding his own hypothetical imagination, he concludes that the authors had enormous theological differences, missing the point of multiple perspectives. One example, one gospel author says that Jesus suffered, and another says that he was calm, collected, and in control as he went to his death. Which one was it, Bart asked. The answer simply is both, right? I've been in situations where I had waves of fear and anxiety, followed by waves of peace and calm. And I think that in this story, if you read the account of Jesus going to his death, you'll see both, just like you'd see in your own life or any other person's life facing such a tragedy. And to claim that those are contradictions or variant perspectives on Christ is absolutely wrong.
So the accounts each have different perspectives and stories, but ones that complement each other rather than contradicting. And for Bart to just claim that they're variant perspectives that disagree with each other is absolutely a mistake. Bart Ehrman brings up the variant views to try and prove the point that at the beginning, Christians didn't agree with each other on main theological issues. Witherington summarizes by saying, it is simply not true to say that many of the primary Christian doctrines were not affirmed widely until centuries after the time of Christ. It also is not true that any such doctrines hang on only late copies of this or that New Testament book. When it comes to the issue of textual variance, the development of the textual tradition and the theological import of such variance, Bart simply overreads the evidence, or as the British say, overeggs the pudding. Bart's modern and individualistic approach to each gospel ignores the collective nature, not merely of ancient culture, but also the tight-knit nature of the early sectarian split-off movement from Judaism called Christianity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution here on KDUR, 91.9 FM and 93.9 FM here in Durango. And we're discussing Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus Interrupted. Welcome to the show. So it's all been very interesting, Nate. Who does Bart claim wrote the Bible? Bart claims that a wide variety of different people, some of them known, some of them unknown, wrote the Bible and that they wrote it from various competing perspectives. He claims that all these different authors each had a bias or something that they wanted to kind of sneak into the Bible, and so they wrote it from those perspectives and tricked each other to try and get it in and used false names of apostles to try and buy credibility for their bizarre theories. The claim is just absolutely crazy. Authorship sometimes is unknown. For example, the book of Hebrews We don't know who wrote that book. So there are cases where authorship of a certain book is unknown, and that really doesn't make a difference at all. It doesn't make Hebrews any less inspired or authentic or any of that. He recognizes that, and he goes from there and says that there are also books that were forged in the names of apostles to get them into the final text. And I was surprised by the weakness of his argument in this chapter. It's the typical argument that a different usage of words in different books implies a different author. Now, if I'm talking to two different audiences, and I do this quite often. In fact, I just spoke at a men's retreat a week ago, and I'll be speaking at a high school graduation this weekend. I'm going to use very different language when I talk to those two different groups, right? Whether you're writing or speaking, you're going to use different language depending on the group you're talking to. So it's wrong to say that because a different word was used in this book and not in that book, it necessarily means that it had a different author. Beyond that, he tries to say, well, these disciples were first century fishermen and the like. And how in the world would they have ever written in Greek, a language they didn't know, and they weren't even trained to read and write in the first place? Well, Acts 6-7 tells us that right at the beginning, the number of believers was growing and growing and growing, and it specifically says that trained professionals like priests were being added to the number of new believers. So there in the first century AD, in the body of believers, there were trained professionals that would be able to transcribe what the disciples wrote in their name. And we see other examples of this where Paul, for example, has people transcribe a letter as he dictates it. And so asking the question about where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John learned the Greek and the writing and the reading skills needed to produce these works is actually a crazy question. There were a lot of people there that would support them in those endeavors and that could easily help them. Ehrman then goes on to repeat the age-old telephone game criticism, and he undermines the authorship of various books with poor critical thinking. We've all heard it, Joseph. 
when people say, well, you know, you play the telephone game and you whisper in one person's ear and then they whisper in another person's ear and then they whisper in another person's ear. And by the time you get to the end, you don't know what was originally written. Well, that breaks down a lot. That might be the case in our 21st century culture. But in that culture that was based on oral tradition and a culture where they actually had to memorize entire books of the Bible by very young ages, that would not be the case. They were committed to memorizing whatever their rabbi taught them. And so his disciples would have been committed to memorizing what he said. They would have been committed to repeating that word for word. And the people that heard it would have also been committed to understanding it and to knowing it. So this idea that the telephone game happened is absolutely crazy. I think it's Plato, actually, that said that there's no reason to write something down other than that you in your old age won't forget it, implying that the oral tradition was so strong that they almost didn't even see a need for books, right? And so this telephone game criticism falls apart. Beyond that, we don't see all the other perspectives a telephone game would produce, right? We have all the documents from the 1st century and the 2nd century and the 3rd centuries A.D., and they all match up. We don't have these wildly crazy reports until we get to other different types of documents that we know are not true because they come so much later. Documents like the Gospel of Thomas, right? Some of these Gnostic Gospels that appear 200 years later after Christ, and they're full of absolutely crazy ideas and concepts, and they're obviously not historical, whereas the Gospels really are historical. So when Bart tries to say that we can't know who wrote the Bible and that the Bible is full of forgeries, he's going out on a limb, to say the least. I heard that Bart refers to C.S. Lewis's trilemma and tries to get around it. So can you tell us a little about that, Nate? When you look at Jesus' claims and the fact that he claimed himself to be God and the only way of salvation, you'd have to be either a liar if you knew you were wrong in saying that, or you'd have to be a lunatic if you thought you were right but really weren't, or you'd actually have to be who you said you were. Joseph, if you told me, Nate, I'm God, I would have to conclude, well, either you're lying to me, or you're out of your mind, or you really are. And I know you, Joseph, you're pretty cool, but you're not God, right? <laughs> so I'd have to conclude you're either a liar or a lunatic. And C.S. Lewis said that's how we have to evaluate the claims of Christ. So was he a liar? Well, C.S. Lewis says we don't have any reason historically to believe that he was a liar. Nothing he ever said seemed to be a lie. He seemed to actually be the most truthful human being that's ever lived. So was he a lunatic? Well, no, no lunatic ever did what Jesus did. He's the most important figure in the history of the world. No lunatic would be able to accomplish that. So C.S. Lewis's final conclusion is his claims were true and he is Lord. Now I must respond to his claims. Interestingly, Bart Ehrman doesn't disagree with that line of logic. What Bart Ehrman tries to do is say there's a fourth option, right? Jesus never even claimed to be Lord. He tries to weed out what we can accept, and then from there to say none of the other Gospels, the earlier Gospels, talk about Jesus as being God. He specifically says none of the synoptic Gospels refer to Christ as God. Well, first and foremost, let's go to what it says about Jesus in the book of John. John was a disciple of Jesus's, and in fact, an eyewitness to all this. And John puts it this way. Jesus had been having a discussion with the Pharisees, and they asked him a question, and Jesus's response was amazing. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, to the casual reader today, you might say, ah, oh, his grammar was a bit off there. He said, I am, instead of I was. Well, no, what Jesus was saying there is he was referring to the Hebrew perspective of God, when God told Moses, 
I am. That's how he defined himself as God, by saying, I am. So Jesus, in this verse, is saying, I am, just like Jehovah God said, I am. He's making a direct claim to deity. He's calling himself God very, very, very clearly. That's just one example out of many in the book of John, and Ehrman tries to circumvent this issue by throwing out the book of John. He says none of the synoptics talk about Jesus as God, completely ignoring the fact that Matthew calls Jesus God with us in chapter 1, verse 23. That's quite a verse to miss. None of the synoptics say that Jesus was God, except for Matthew, which says he was God with us. And what about Paul? A lot of Paul's writings actually came before the Gospels when he refers to Jesus as Lord over 200 times. He uses the word kurios in the Greek. This is the same word that Paul uses to translate into the Greek from the Hebrew, the Hebrew word Yahweh for God, Y-H-W-H. You can see that in Romans 9, 28 through 29. So even in Paul's mind, writing before a lot of the Gospels were put on paper, Paul was saying clearly Jesus is Lord and he's equal with Yahweh God. You could look at I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. There's an entire chapter, chapter 13, that does a phenomenal job of showing from both the Old and New Testaments not only that Jesus was the Messiah, but that he was God and that he knew that he was God and that he claimed that. So when we look at the liar, lunatic, or Lord trilemma, Bart cannot get around it by simply saying, oh, there's this fourth option. He didn't think he was God. So how does Bart try to criticize how we got the Bible? Bart spends the whole book saying we can't trust the manuscripts because there aren't enough early copies. And then he picks books with very few copies from centuries later, like the Gospel of Thomas, and asks why they weren't included. This is absolutely preposterous to say we need to take the first, earliest, best copies and then to turn around in the same book and say, wait a minute, why aren't you taking this copy from 200 years later that we don't have many copies of? Exactly like the Gnostic Gospels. Not a great idea. After discussing how rigorous we must be in deciding what to accept and reject, Bart talks about how he'd like to remove 1 Timothy because of its teachings and include the Gospel of Peter because of its fiction. So interestingly, after telling us how rigorous we're supposed to be, when asked what he would change about the Bible, based solely on his preference, he says, I'd take out 1 Timothy and I'd add the Gospel of Peter, which is a fictitious gospel from a couple hundred years after Christ. The evidence for why we have the Bible today is solid, and we're actually going to be talking about that next week. So, Nate, why is Bart wrong in saying that the modern view of Christianity is just the one that happened to win out over the other early views of Christianity? Well, Bart tries to tell us that there are wildly competing views all over the place. Jesus was God, Jesus wasn't God, and Jesus rose from the dead physically, Jesus rose from the dead spiritually, and many other different varying theological perspectives. And Partly, he's right here. It would be crazy to say that they weren't there. Bart tries to say that all these theories from the start were equals, and that it's just the one that we hold today that finally won out over those because of the Roman Empire and Constantine. Orthodox Christianity is not just the theory that won out over a bunch of equal competing theories, but rather it's what we have from the start, from the very beginning. And that is why even in Scripture, we see Paul and others criticizing these developing theories coming from the Gnostics or the Judaizers or other different factions that were breaking off from the early Christian church or trying to infiltrate the early Christian church. We see, for example, in Galatians chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul addressing some of these other 
theologies that were trying to infiltrate the church. So the idea is not that they were all equals at the start and this one just went out, but rather from the start we knew that they weren't equals, and that proved to be the point over time. When it comes to the Bible, the best answer is what we have. Orthodox Christianity from the start was Christianity. It was attacked with varying views coming from different sects and different types of perspectives, and it held true all along. So, Bart concludes his book by asking an important question. Is faith possible? So, what does he have to say, and how would you respond? Ehrman says yes, <laughs> which is good. He says, yes, faith is possible. Obviously, everything you do is founded at some level on faith. Even the scientific method has at its core assumptions that are taken on faith. The chair you're sitting in, you're sitting in by faith. I mean, you think about it, and everything we do every single day has some aspect of faith involved in it. And so Ehrman rightly agrees that there is a place for faith. He does make a huge mistake, though. He says that our faith in Christ and our faith in the Bible are not based on knowledge. He tries to say you can have faith, but it's going to be kind of like a wishy-washy leap of faith that's not based in knowledge. A note about that is that knowledge and faith go hand in hand. They don't undermine each other. They don't disagree with each other, but rather the more knowledge you have about something, the more faith you'll be able to have. If I know a rope can hold a 1,000 pounds, I'll have faith to repel off a cliff with it, right? So the more my knowledge grows, the more my faith will as well. And it's the same in the other direction also. So faith and knowledge kind of work together. Now, when Ehrman says that our faith in the Bible cannot be based on knowledge, he's basing that on his conspiracy theory version of the authenticity of Scripture and the foundation of Christianity. Again, most of his scholar friends agree that the Bible is true and believe in Christ themselves. So to say that your faith cannot be based in knowledge is absolutely crazy when he's already told us that most of his friends, that our scholars, are believers, right? So the way that I think we need to look at it is our faith is really based in something solid. It's based in truth. It's based in reality. We have strong reasons to put our faith in God's word and to be able to have the faith that it is inerrant and perfect in all that it says. Ehrman's own conclusions are based on a lot of assumptions. If those assumptions are found lacking, and they are, all his points fall apart. The bottom line here is that faith in the inerrancy of God's word is valid. Witherington describes Ehrman's feeble attempts by saying, And now we begin to see why biblically illiterate people who are skeptical about the Bible are drawn to the Ehrman analysis. It appears to take the text at face value and evaluate it by comparison and contrast without taking into consideration at all issues of literary context or conventions. This is not only not proper, in most cases it is not possible. The real truth seeker knows that a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you would like it to mean. Daniel Wallace, who is also one of the authorities in this field, summarizes this by saying, basically, Bart Ehrman is good at scaring lay people, but not so great at changing scholars' minds. The bottom line is that Bart is an intelligent and respected expert in the field of textual criticism. But instead of doing real work there, he seems to be committed to his bias, the problem of pain, we mentioned that in the beginning, and focused on hammering out conspiracy theories that support that bias, rather than what's really true. I really would suggest that you read more on this. I would say read anything by Daniel Wallace. He's written a few different books that contradict Bart Ehrman. 
And I would also encourage you to read parts one through four on benwitherington.blogspot.com titled Bart Interrupted. Before we end, though, I did want to say that I do agree with one thing that Ehrman said. Ehrman says it's just one of the mysteries of the universe how so many people can revere the Bible and think that in it is God's inspired revelation to his people and yet know so little about it. So Ehrman even recognizes the reality that Christians don't know a whole lot about the Bible. I would encourage you, if you are a believer, get to know the Bible. It is the inerrant word of God. You can have faith in God and in his word. If you're listening today and you don't yet have a relationship with Christ, I want to encourage you that Jesus, right now, this very moment, desires a relationship with you. Simply by saying, yes, forgive me, come into my life, we could have a relationship with God himself. I would encourage you today, if you've never taken that step, you can meet Jesus now simply by asking him to come into your life and by asking him to forgive your sins. If you'd like to investigate more about Jesus, I would encourage you to visit First United Methodist Church this morning. They meet at 2917 Aspen Drive. Aspen Drive is just one turn off of Florida. Turn on to Aspen Drive and just go to the end, and you'll see First United Methodist Church. At 9.30 this morning, they're going to be doing a contemporary service, and at 11 o'clock this morning, they're going to be doing a traditional service. Tell Jeff we say hi when you see him. Please tune in next week again to hear more about why we can trust the Bible. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Joseph Fidel. Have a great Sunday. Oh, God.